We are resuming our series on Millennialism 101, and I'm going to pick uh, pick up right where I left off last time with our discussion of the two-age model. And um, if you don't have the handout, uh, I do have a few of them up front, and Josh would be happy to give you each a copy. This is simply a list of those biblical passages that deal with the two ages. And I'm going to go over this shortly, so if you don't have a copy, uh, raise your hand, make sure you get one because I will refer to that. And that is on the uh, blog, and you can download it uh, anytime you wish. It's just simply a kind of a summation of the biblical passages that deal with this. And I think you'll find this a very compelling way uh, to understand the history of the New Testament. So, I'm going to cover uh, the two-age model specifically in relationship to the implausibility of premillennialism tonight. And then in the next lecture, which will be the third in our series on the two-age model. I'm going to cover the two-age model and New Testament parallels, and that will get us to the end of our winter term for the academy. Now, when the Scriptures explicitly tell us that the line of demarcation between the two ages, between this age and the age to come, when they explicitly tell us that the line of demarcation between the two is the second advent of Christ, we have just raised a major obstacle to all forms of premillennialism. Now, listen to the language of our Lord in Matthew chapter 13. The harvest, speaking of the wheat, he's explaining the parable of the wheat to the disciples. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire... First of all, do we have any of the references in the New Testament for the angels coming when Christ comes back? Yep, when Christ appears, He appears with the heavenly hosts. Um, We also are told that when the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, that's a picture to us of what? Judgment. The weeds are pulled up, burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. So as Jesus is explaining this parable to the disciples, it's very clear that He's talking about the second coming and that judgment occurs when He comes back because the weeds are pulled up and they are thrown into the fire. Now, why is that a problem for premillennialism? Well, if this is our model, our two-age model, Christ's first advent, His second advent, and then the age to come, which is always used in reference to things eternal, our premillennial friends set up a, a system like this. The present age, Christ coming, a thousand years of Christ ruling and reigning on the earth. All premillennials believe this dispensationalism is a subset or a species of premillennialism. And at the end of a thousand years, Jesus comes back, or well, Jesus will be the final judgment. And before the final judgment, we have an apostasy or a revolt on the earth. Here in the parable, Jesus is making it very, very clear that when He returns at the end of the age, the weeds are burned in the fire. When Christ comes back, we have the judgment. Now, our premillennial friends say, well, no, no, the judgment's a thousand years later. If you're premillennial, you've been arguing you're premillennial because you read the Bible literally. And so our question to our premillennial friends is, okay, where's the gap? Where's the gap of a thousand years between the weeds being thrown in the fire and the end of the millennial age, the the kingdom of Christ on the earth? 
In that passage, Jesus goes on to say, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. That's a picture of eternal punishment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, endless punishment. And I think that is a serious blow against all forms of premillennialism. Jesus says judgment occurs at the second coming, not a thousand years later. And that's a very problem, a very real problem for premillennialists who say they're premillennial because they read the Bible literally. Now, the separation of bodily resurrections by a 1,000 year um, period of time that premillennialists call a millennium is the linchpin of premillennialism. If that is a biblical impossibility, there's no longer any reason to be premillennial. And as I was working through these issues, that was the, the issue that started to, to crumble in on me is, wait a minute, how is it possible for there to be an earthly millennium if the judgment occurs when Christ comes back? A related question is, how do people get through the judgment to go onto the earth to inhabit it in natural bodies? That's an impossibility as well. So the whole case starts to get weaker and weaker and weaker, and the two-age model uh, becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. Now, as I've been mentioning, premillenarians arrive at this conclusion, they say, because their hermeneutic is based on a literal interpretation of the Scriptures. And now, when the biblical writers clearly tell us that judgment occurs at the time of our Lord's return, um, let me read you a passage from... Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the heavenly angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So when the Son of Man comes with His glory, then He separates the wheat from the tare and the sheep from the goats. And premillenarians insist, no, there's a thousand-year gap between our Lord's return and the final judgment. Even George Ladd, who I esteem greatly as a biblical theologian and a great scholar, Ladd says, you know, Matthew 25 is really the biggest problem I have as a premillenarian because it seems to me that the, that passage is saying the judgment occurs when the Lord comes back, but Ladd goes on to say it has to be parabolic. It has to be kind of in the context of Jesus giving these these parables, um, it, we can't necessarily take that literally or else we have a problem in Revelation chapter 20. Well, I think there's a pretty good resolution to, to that problem. And even Leon Ladd realizes this is, this is a very serious issue. <clears throat> now, I think it's huge to remind our premillennial friends that the line of demarcation between this age and the age to come is the second coming. I think that is a very, very important point. I want to add a whole additional series of tissue and bones and muscle to that skeletal framework. It is clearly taught in Scripture that when Christ comes back, we've got the two-age model teaching it already, but it's clearly taught in Scripture when Christ comes back, three things happen. There are three concomitant events. One is the bodily resurrection. We have three very clear passages in the New Testament that speak of the bodily resurrection as occurring when our Lord's come back. And I would like to read them. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The famous resurrection passage. And I would like to read verses 
35 through 57. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He's chosen in each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. But is it not the spiritual that is formed first from the ground and then the uh, spiritual that is first, but the uh, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus is, uh, Paul here is speaking of a complete transformation of human existence. Is he not? From things perishable to things imperishable. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Where in that is there room for somebody on the earth after Christ comes back in a natural body? There is none. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that passage very clearly tells us that at the second coming, the dead are raised. Now our premillennial friends will say, yeah, but there are people who are still alive who somehow go on into the millennial age in natural bodies. Well, we'll take care of that in just a minute. Turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 13. This is the famous rapture passage. But that's a great misnomer because it's actually another resurrection passage. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
Again, sleep is a word signifying those who've died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep, those who've died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what happens to believers who are alive when Christ comes back? They are caught up at His coming. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Very important passage. We've joked about this a number of times. But our dispensational friends say this is when Christ comes and snatches believers on the earth, off the earth, secretly. Now, the whole point of this passage, it seems to me, the sense is plain, or the plain sense of the passage is to say, nobody's going to sleep through this. Even the dead are going to be awakened. It's going to be a bit loud. So, as Ken Jones puts it, you know, if dispensationalists are right, then this is like a cosmic dog whistle. Only Christians hear it. Uh, it's a, a, you know, you guys don't know what a dog whistle is. The thing you blow, it's so high-pitched, only dogs hear it, no one else can. Well, that's what the second coming would be like if dispensations are correct. Only Christians apparently hear the, the trumpet that raises the dead. Then we who are alive, who are left, are caught up together with the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then skip ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1, and let's look at verses 5 through 10. This is another very, very important and often overlooked passage. This is the evidence of the righteousness judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. When is God going to mete out justice? When Christ is revealed from heaven with His angels. That sounds just like Matthew 13, does it not? Revealed from heaven with these mighty angels in flaming fire. Fire is hot. Fire is a judgment motif. Do you want any part of the baptism of fire? No, baptism of fire is judgment. So when our Pentecostal friends talk about being fire baptized, they just wince because fire is hot. Uh, you want to be away from the fire on the day of judgment as far as you can. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. When is eternal destruction? When is it meted out? When Christ comes back. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you. And Paul goes on to give them a word of encouragement. So, all three of these passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, tell us that the dead are raised and that judgment occurs when? When Christ comes back. That fits with the nature of this age always being temporal, the age to come always being eternal, what separates this age from the fullness of the age to come is Christ's second coming. So, 
when Christ comes back, the dead are raised, we have judgment, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Apostle Peter also describes what happens when our Lord returns. And let's pick up at uh, verse 3. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the Father fell asleep, all things are continued as they were from the beginning of creation. So, I think it's rather ironic that we just create scoffers by setting dates and making predictions that don't come to pass. We just give the scoffers more ammunition to scoff. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by the means of the world these then, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, the ungodly are destroyed when Christ comes back, which is also the day of judgment. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years this is one day. So are we going to make a huge case out of the thousand years being literal when Peter here tells us that the idea of a thousand years can be used symbolically? Just kind of follow that away. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is, of course, referring to the fact that all believers would repent and come to a saving knowledge of Christ, all the elect. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, suddenly, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, concomitant events. The resurrection, the judgment, and the cosmic renewal all occur when Christ comes back. Where is there any room for a thousand year millennium on the earth after Christ comes back? Remember, premillenarians tell us Christ comes back Judges some people. People with natural bodies go on and live on the earth for a thousand years with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. At the end of the thousand years, there's a revolt and then the judgment. Is that a biblical possibility based on the passages we've just seen? The answer is absolutely not. The only passage that apparently teaches such a thing is Revelation chapter 20. And when we resume the course down the road, I'll go through Revelation chapter 20 in great detail and we'll see that that is an impossibility there as well because the scene in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, or 1 to 6, doesn't take place on the earth, but takes place in heaven. So the millennium is a current period of time. It's not a thousand year period of Christ's rule on the earth after he returns, as the two age model and these parallel passages very, very clearly show us. Now, premillenarians just can't be allowed to have it both ways. 
Uh, some of them will say, well, you know, you guys are overly platonic here by returning to the world of heavenly forms. We're, we're not Gnostic like you guys. We're going to have Christ set up a physical rule on the earth. Well, it's a nice try, but it doesn't escape the problem that if that's true, at the end of this thousand years, on that real earth, that material planet redeemed by Christ, what do the nations do? They revolt. You get a real revolt too. A blood and flesh, some of it redeemed against Christ. So, I think you have to be very, very careful. Uh, even appealing to progressive revelation, there are some of the better dispensational writers do that. That's the only way uh, out for them. Um, and Clay, Craig Blazing tries that in the preface to the uh, premillennialism book, but I think you still end up with a problem that evil uh, is, is a serious ramification for all forms of premillennialism. Now, let's add a whole other line of evidence to this. Um, and I'll give you a, kind of a sense of where we're going to go in our, our next lecture. For believers in Jesus, the first resurrection has already come to pass. It's a passage we've read before, but I want to read it again because I want you to be familiar with it. John chapter 5. I take John to be the author of the Apocalypse as well. So look at John chapter 5, especially verses uh, 24 and 25. Jesus is speaking about His authority and He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has as a present possession eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So, an hour is already here when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and they... What? They live. So when our premillennial friends say the first resurrection has to be the bodily resurrection when Christ comes back, John has just told us that the first resurrection occurs in this age, before Christ comes back. The first resurrection has occurred when you come to faith in Christ and you are regenerated and it comes to fruition when you die and enter the presence of the Lord. You've already experienced the first resurrection. And of course, the great joy is those who participate in the first resurrection do not participate in the second death. We're not punished eternally. John also goes on to say, those who are Christ have passed over from death to life. And he tells us in John chapter 6, uh, verses 39 to 40 and verse 44, that those who have passed over will be raised to life on the last day. Those who have come to life are now in the presence of the Lord are raised bodily at the end of the age. And so, this is when we, we get into discussion of the intermediate state. What happens to our beloved who die in the Lord? Where do they go? Revelation 20 gives us a picture. They go into the presence of the Lord in heaven, triumphant, awaiting. Revelation 4, 5, and 6. When we get that great scene before the throne, they're awaiting what? The Lord to return so that they get their resurrection bodies. So there's a sense in heaven that even those around the glassy sea, those around the throne are crying out, 
How long, O Lord? They're anticipating Christ's return because then they too are raised. So all of history is racing toward this, toward this great moment when our Lord returns and the heavens roll up like a scroll and the dead in Christ shall be raised. John gives us a glimpse into probably the best theologian in uh, the apostolic circle, Martha. Uh, when our Lord consoles Martha after the death of Lazarus, it's Martha, not the male disciples. It's Martha who says, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. At least she knew that uh, better than the rest of them did. And then we have John's comments about the last day, especially in light of a couple comments from Paul. The sinful nature, he says, but not the spirit will be destroyed on the day of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. The sinful nature will be destroyed on the day of the Lord. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, we've already read, the last trumpet occurs on the day of the Lord and that the day of the Lord will come as a thief, 1 Thessalonians 5, and that according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, it is still future. So a very impressive case can be made that the resurrection, the judgment, and the recreation are all concomitant events. They all occur when Christ comes back. And if that's true, premillennialism is an impossibility, biblically speaking. And not only does the two-age model drive a stake in its heart, now we're just adding more nails in the coffin. Uh, it becomes very hard to be premillennial if those three things happen at the same time. And I think you can see very clearly that they do. Now, as I mentioned um, earlier, this presents a huge problem for those who insist, whether you be a dispensationalist, a progressive, or a historic preliminary, who want to say that somehow or another life goes on after the second coming. Um, we've seen that's an impossibility. There is no halfway kind of restoration. There's a full restoration, including a new heaven and new earth. And again, this raises what I think is the biggest problem for anybody who's premillennial. If you're premillennial, remember that at the end of the age, at the end of that period in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, let's read that passage because I think it makes our point rather clearly. This is what happens if you are premillennial after Jesus has ruled over the earth for a thousand years and after Christ has come back. This is what our dispensational premillennial, um, progressive dispensational friends all say will occur. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And it goes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. We already have a problem there because according to Revelation 19, the nations are judged when Christ comes back. Matthew 25 says the same thing. So, in the millennium, the nations are restored. Human government goes on in the millennial age. The DMV is going to reopen. So is the post office. So is the IRS. That doesn't sound like much of a millennial reign to me. I'm being facetious. Someone's going to send me an email and say, I'm joking. But the nations reappear. And what do they do? They marched over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Ah, got to read that literally. That's Jerusalem. Well, according to Hebrews, the heavenly city is the new Jerusalem, the new Zion. 
The church of the living God, surrounded by angels. Remember that? The camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Fire comes down from heaven during the millennium and consumes people who have been living on the earth after Jesus is physically ruling it for a thousand years. Is that not a bit of a problem? Especially when we've made the case that there can't be anybody on the earth during that time who somehow gets through the second coming without being judged or raised. And fire comes down and consumes them. And the devil who had been deceived was who had deceived them. Now think about this. The devil deceives them while Christ is ruling on the earth. Was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Doesn't it make much more sense to see this as occurring before Christ comes back? Then in the days immediately before the Lord's return, Satan is released from the abyss. Deceives the nations. Does this make perfect sense that this would occur before the Lord returns? Then when He returns, He destroys all of these things, as the passage says. Absolutely. Revelation 20 is not talking about a future period of time. It's talking about the present. It would make perfect sense that things would be very horrible in the days immediately before the Lord would return. So, I think evil in the millennial age then becomes, if not the greatest, certainly among the many problems that dispensationalism faces. Do you really want to say there's a giant revolt against Christ after He's ruled and reigned on the earth for a thousand years? I don't think you want to do that. Now, we've already seen from very many clear passages in the Gospels and throughout Paul's letters that the resurrection, the judgment, and the recreation have already occurred at the coming of Christ. The age of things fallen and temporal has already come to an end. Now, the age to come of immortality, resurrection, life, and no marriage is now a glorious reality. Remember, we looked at the passage earlier, and we'll see it again briefly in a moment. Mark chapter 13, when the Lord returns, that is the end of the age. Right? Can there be temporal existence after the end of the age? No marriage, no giving in marriage. Resurrection life. Flesh and blood can't inherit it. You can't have people here in natural bodies. It just isn't going to happen. It's impossible. The last day has already come. Our Lord has raised His own and He sent those who are not His into the fires of eternal judgment. There simply can't be people on the earth in natural bodies. And I've just labored that point over and over and over, but it's so important to grasp. If you're premillennial, you have to explain the existence of people on the earth in natural bodies who somehow get through the second coming. And it's very, very difficult to do. Now, our premillennial friends will say that, well, the only, concept, the, only, the only alternative to that is to say the thousand years then are not literal. And I think you would want to make the case then in the book where numbers are always used symbolically where numbers are always, a, 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 especially in an apocalyptic... Remember, in apocalyptic literature, you have two things going on. One is you have the historical circumstances in the background. And throughout the book of Revelation, the historical situation is the oppression of Christians by the Roman Empire. You have, after Nero's come and gone, now you have this rise of horrible persecution. The first beast, the second beast, coming from Domitian... Christians in Asia Minor are being persecuted like never before. This is not just Rome. Now, this is, this is in Asia Minor. That's in the background. And then John uses images in the foreground 
to explain the reality of all that we're seeing. And so in this this use of symbols and images, all taken from the Old Testament, by the way. John's not pulling them out of thin air. He's going back to the Old Testament. So, for example, locusts. If you lived in the Mediterranean world in the first century, you knew all about locusts. And when locusts would come, what would happen? Cataclysmic destruction. Locusts, when they come in swarms, eat and destroy everything. So why would John use the image of locusts coming and tormenting people? Was John given a vision of a Bell UH-1B Huey helicopter? And he says, that looks like a locust. No, he's using a first century image of judgment. When locusts come, they eat and destroy everything. Scorpions, another one. What did you do every night before you went to bed in most of the Mediterranean world? You checked where you were going to sleep for the presence of scorpions. How Lindsay thinks the scorpions in Revelation are uh, nerve gas that's in the back of these helicopters. Now, we laugh at how how Lindsay's on the speculative wing. Not all premillenarians embrace that. But it's rather amusing that the guy who says all millenarians are anti-Semitic because they don't take the Bible literally is the same guy who says locusts are helicopters and the scorpion sting is nerve gas. So, I think we could expect Hal Lindsey to be a little more charitable and more consistent. That's the point. Um, All of these things in apocalyptic literature refer to things in the Old Testament. So, a thousand years, a number of perfection perhaps, uh, ten times jubilee, you know, who knows what this, it's an ideal period of time, but it's clearly talking about the present. So, either you take the thousand years literally and get a second fall on people with natural bodies and all of that, or else you take a number, like a thousand, argue it's symbolic, which is pretty reasonable to do in a book where every number is used symbolically. What's four? Number four mean? The book of Revelation. How many corners did the earth have? North, south, east, west. Twelve. Hmm. Twelve tribes. Twelve apostles. Six, 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 six. Six is the number of man, short of the number for perfection, deity, seven, completion. Six, 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 man trying to deify himself, never attaining deity, the creation pattern, working for six days, resting on the seventh, man trying to deify himself, never attaining deity, and never entering the Sabbath rest. 666, it just makes perfect. Every number in the book of Revelation is, is used in a symbol taken from the Old Testament to describe in these word pictures what's in the background, the oppression of the church by the Roman Empire. Now, one passage where our dispensational friends will dig in their heels and say, ah, we can defend it. Our millennial position is from 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 28. And here is another passage that I think actually turns on the dispensationalists or the premillenarian and, and crushes them. Let me just read the, the passage to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-28 For as in Adam all die, that's as a result of the fall, so in Christ all will be made alive at the resurrection. 
but each in his own turn. In the Greek term, there is togmati. Christ the first fruits, that is, in his own resurrection power. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, that is, those who are alive and sleep in Christ. Then, the very next thing, the end will come, which is the final judgment, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion and authority and power, and he does that when he comes back. For he must reign, that is, from his ascension until he has put all enemies under his feet, which he does at his return. The last enemy he destroyed is death. He does that in the general resurrection at the end. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything under him, it is clear this does not include Christ, God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be in all. Now, what's missing in that passage? A millennium. It isn't there. When Christ ascends into heaven, he must rule until his last enemy is defeated. And the last enemy is death. When is death defeated? At the resurrection. So, wait a minute. The last enemy, Satan and all that on premillennialism, isn't defeated until a thousand years later. And that's why premillennialists have to say that in this passage, Paul spreads it out and he allows for the millennial age. The only problem is, I don't see the millennial age uh, anywhere in there. And this was the, the passage that kept me premillennial for the longest time. I remember reading a, a book by Robert Duncan Culver, who taught at Moody. He's a pretty good theologian. And Culver you know, said, I'm, I'm wrestling with millennialism, and I think 1 Corinthians 15 is the one passage that keeps me you know, historic premillennial. And as I worked through his arguments, it just was really clear this passage is, is really more problematic for a premillennialian than some of the other passages are because it tells us that Christ has to rule until he's put his last enemy under his foot, his feet. And if it were else in the New Testament, the last enemy is conquered at the resurrection. And the New Testament is very clear when the resurrection occurs, when Christ comes back. And Paul never mentions a millennial period here. Period. It's not there. So, our dispensational premillennial friends are really in the horns of a dilemma here. The, the passage that some of them say is the strongest actually uh, just increases the case. Well, what I'd like to do now is just go through then a real quick summary of the biblical passages that deal with the two-age model. And um, you've all had a chance to look at this. And let's just lay the case out here very, very quickly and simply. Biblical texts that speak of this age... Matthew 12:32 There's no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew 24:3 The end of the age will be preceded by signs. Matthew 28:20 20, Christ will be with us until the end of the age. Luke 28:30 There are material rewards given to us in this life. Luke 20:34 The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Mark 10.30, the present age is an age of homes and fields and families. Romans 12.2, we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world or this age. 1 Corinthians 1.20, philosophy is the wisdom of this age. 1 Corinthians 2.6-8, the wisdom of rulers and uh, 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 human wisdom is of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is the god of this age who has blinded the minds of men and women. Galatians 1.4, Paul says this present age is evil. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul speaks of Christ's reign in the present age. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, he says the ways of this world or this age are evil. 
1 Timothy 6.17, those who are rich in this age are not to hope in their wealth for the next. And Titus 2.12, we are to live godly lives in the present age. In every instance, the quality associated with this age is always temporal. So, when this age ends, all things temporal end. The case is pretty overwhelming. But the contrast is not between this life and a millennial age, but between things temporal and things eternal. Texts that talk about the age to come. Just look at the, look at the difference in, in quality here. Matthew 12:32. No forgiveness in the age to come for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Mark 13:40. The weeds will be thrown into the fire. Mark 10:30. Eternal life is a reward. Parallel passage, Luke 18:30. Eternal life is a reward. Luke 20, verse 35, no marriage or given in marriage. Natural relationships end in the age to come. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, evildoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and I'll refer you to those of you who say, well, that's not a reference to this age. Well, I'll refer you to Gerhardus Voss's Pauline Eschatology where he makes a pretty compelling case that the kingdom of God and the age to come are, are, can be used as synonyms in those passages. 1 Corinthians 15.50 Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21 Those who have evil lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 1.21 Christ rules in this age. He will reign also in the age to come. Ephesians 5.5 Immoral people will not enter the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 We're encouraged to live lives worthy of the kingdom. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 Faith will count you worthy of the kingdom. 1 Timothy 6.19, the coming age has life that is truly life. And 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will bring us into the kingdom of God. Notice the contrast. In every one of those passages, the qualities assigned to this age are all eternal, non-temporal in nature. They are eschatological. When Christ comes back, we enter the eternal state, the age to come. There is no room for an earthly millennium. And then finally, the line of demarcation between the two is this crystal clear uh, it just doesn't get any clearer than this. Matthew 13:39. The harvest is the end of the age. The angels are the harvester. The weeds, Matthew 13:40, will be burned in the fire at the end of the age. And Matthew 13:49, the angels will separate the wicked from the righteous. I want to go this just one more time to make sure everybody gets it. This age refers to things temporal. Age to come refers to things eternal. We're told in the parable of the weeds, the age ends when Christ comes back. That fits with a whole other line of data that says the resurrection, the judgment, and the recreation all occur when Christ comes back. I think when you start to line this data up, it just becomes very, very clear that premillennialism is just simply implausible. It does not fit with very clear passages throughout the entirety of the New Testament. There is no room for an earthly millennium anywhere in our Lord and Paul's view of history. There is no room for an earthly millennium when you consider these three things occur at the same time. Well, let's wrap up then just with some points of, of conclusion that, that I think we can kind of hammer down some things here as we wrap up. First, Jesus and Paul speak of the present course of history as this age and the consummation as the age to come. That is the basic 
eschatological framework that is the philosophy of history as taught in the New Testament. Everywhere, the Bible tells us time gives way to eternity. When we speak of eternal life, we're talking about life in the age to come. That is the biblical pattern of history. There is no millennial scheme anywhere in this. Either after Christ comes back or let's get our post-millennial friends. There's no golden age on the earth before Christ comes back either. The contrast isn't between this world, a halfway state, a golden age, and the consummation. The contrast is between time and eternity. There is no room for a millennial age on the earth. Second thing is, it is very clear that a final judgment occurs when Christ returns. And there's no hint anywhere in the New Testament that there's a delay of some sort in the judgment of unbelievers until after the thousand-year reign of Christ is over on the earth. There's just no passage that tells us that the final judgment comes a thousand years after Christ comes back. Now, why that's so important is our premillennial friends have told us over and over and over again they're premillennial because they take the Bible literally. Where is the gap? You've got to find in your hermeneutic, your literal hermeneutic, a way to justify sticking a thousand year gap in there. You can't do it if you're premillennial. Because your hermeneutic won't let you do it. It is utterly self-contradictory to argue that way. Third, since judgment occurs at the return of Christ, there can only be two categories of people after Christ's return. Very simple. The righteous who participate in the blessings of the age to come and those who are not, who we read are burned up in the fire. That makes it extremely difficult to argue that people are left on the earth in unresurrected bodies after Christ comes back and after the judgment of all men and women. If you're premillennial, you've got to prove to me how you get people on the earth in natural bodies after the Lord returns. Let's just put it again one more time. When Christ comes back, there are either believers or unbelievers, right? Believers go on into eternal life, right? Non-believers are thrown into the fire. How do you get people living on the earth after Christ comes back? You don't have a category. There's no room for it. Now, dispensationalists say, oh, I can explain that. The rapture comes seven years before Christ's second coming. And He takes off all the believing Gentiles. Those are the people who go on the age to come. And the people who come, become Christians after the rapture are the ones who go on... It's a smokescreen. You still have Christ coming back at the end of the tribulation period. And how do you get people through that without being condemned or given eternal life? It's impossible. The imagery of children playing with snakes and lions becoming herbivores is a picture to us of an eternal state we cannot possibly conceive we're given an explanation of things beyond our comprehension in earthly terms. I used to, I remember talking to my parents about, gee, when the, Jesus rules on the earth and He's in Jerusalem, I want a pet tiger. Very appropriate for a child to consider. But that's only because I can't conceive of the glories that await in the age to come. And to, to yes, those, those blessings have to be pictured in temporal terms because I can't understand the glories of the eternal terms. 
So, of course, that's why we're given images like that. It makes perfect sense. We have sheep, we have goats, we have wheat, tares, we have elect or reprobate. Those who are Christ, the sheep, the wheat, and the elect are raised from the dead. They participate in the glories of the age to come. The goats, the tares, and the reprobate are judged when Christ comes back. So, premillennialism is an impossibility. Now, as I mentioned, the dispensationalists try and get around that with the rapture, but that doesn't work either. So, if you're premillennial, you've got several giant problems. You've got to get people in natural bodies and you can't. And even if you get them in there, you've got a second fall. Now, one last... I'm going to make a brief comment about preterism. I, I, I did a fair bit of discussion on preterism when I did the series on my book, The Man of Sin. And um, if you're interested in my discussion in more detail of preterism, I, I've got some substantial criticism of preterism in those four lectures that are posted. But I do want to say our preterist friends will say that the transfer of this age, which is the Jewish age, they say, to the Christian age, age to come, occurs not the second advent, but in AD 70, when Christ supposedly returns over Jerusalem and judges Israel. Um, That is obviously highly problematic because the categories given to qualify this age and age to come are not temporal. They're temporal versus eternal. Yes, there's a major redemptive historical shift historically in AD 70 when the temple's destroyed. Clearly, this is a very significant moment in redemptive history. But the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is not the transference from temporal to eternal. And so preterism fails as well to make sense of the two-age model. And if you look at uh, Russell's book on the two-age, uh, on uh, I forget the exact title of his volume on the, the, the parousia, um, he has a very, very difficult time, I think, trying to make his case that this age refers to the Jewish age and the age to come refers to the Gentile age of salvation. I think that argument collapses on its head as well. And I do, for those of you interested in the preterist debate, like I say, I've got some... Uh, a little bit more detailed lecture on that on the blog on the uh, Man of Sin discussion. Time for questions. Based on how simple you put it as far as the problems of um, premillennialism, why do they feel it's so important to believe that position, hold on to that position, when it's very clear, um, as the way you presented tonight, that it has so many problems? That's a great question. Part of it is, if you look, you would really enjoy, I know you well enough to know, you would really enjoy George Marsden's book, Fundamentalism in American Culture. And George Marsden does a great job describing how premillennialism and dispensationalism came to dominate American evangelicalism. Recall that the founder of the Moody Bible Institute and all the mainline evangelicals in the 1880s were post-millennial. And they shifted as things started to go from bad to worse with the the, uh, arrival of German higher criticism into the United States that they challenged denial of the supernatural. Um, One of the things, one of the doctrines that gets tied into the conservative Fundamentalists, remember, in this period, fundamentalists were not um, 
Islamic radicals nor people who set fire to abortion clinics, you know. Fundamentalists were the intelligentsia of evangelicalism. And if you read the fundamentals, you'll find the best evangelical scholars attacking German higher criticism, beginning to make its way into the United States. What happens is you have Christians defending a number of fundamental doctrines that liberals can't believe. The virgin birth, the new birth being supernatural, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and his imminent second advent. And somehow, the second coming bodily, which is an orthodox view, that begins to be a real source of orthodoxy. And as that doctrine begins to be emphasized, it's also tied to this whole series of Bible prophecy conferences held at Niagara, New York, and this takes on a whole life in evangelicals and dispensation spreads throughout the evangelical world. And what I heard growing up was liberals were amillennial. Because liberals don't believe in the supernatural. They, they have problems with miracles and so on. So this just desupernaturalizes the idea of Christ's imminent coming. He can come back at any moment. Roman Catholics are amillennial. And if Catholics believe anything, it's wrong. That was kind of, I grew up in a very strong you know, anti-Catholic Protestant fundamentalism. Um, so somehow, some way, that, that kind of literalistic hermeneutic that was used to respond to higher criticism uh, gets attached to the prophecy conferences, the stress on the supernatural. Christ can come back at any moment. Uh, the pessimism of the culture. Remember, when did Schofield's first edition come out? Was it 1909? Um, what happens in 1914? The war to end all wars. What happens in the 1920s? The Great Depression. World War II, the end of World War II, the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb has a huge influence upon evangelical um, thought because now for the first time it's theoretically possible for us to destroy ourselves. So the, the, height, the, the heightened tension uh, comes that we could now have a nuclear war. Well, you're not going to be here when it happens because the rapture is going to come before. So there's just there are a whole lot of reasons why premillennialism becomes, becomes so entrenched in American evangelicalism. It's not very well entrenched anywhere else in the history of the church. There are premillennial outbreaks every now and then. There are a few historic premillenarians around. Uh, it's been argued that the church fathers who actually heard the disciples preach believe that there's a kingdom of God on the earth, but I would refer you to the work of Charles Hill, my classmate at Westminster, who has basically the church fathers, some are premillennial and some are amillennial. So the argument that we're all historic premill is that's not correct either. Um, it's, it's a hermeneutic that basically says we're not going to buy into this anti-supernaturalism of the Germans. And we're going to defend the virgin birth. And we're going to defend being born again by the blood of Jesus. And we're going to defend that Scripture is given supernaturally by the Holy Spirit without error. And we're going to defend the imminent second coming. And out of that, and God bless all of them for defending the faith against higher criticism, out of that comes the second coming and then the secret rapture becoming kind of the test of orthodoxy in much of American evangelicalism. And that's kind of gone the way of the wind um, I see premillennialism on the wane. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons John MacArthur got so testy at the Shepherds Conference. 
Uh, there are lots of master's guys that are on mill now. I get emails from them about once a week now from somebody who's just converted. So uh, I think more and more conservative, supernaturally, def- uh, who will defend the supernatural elements of Scripture, including the full inspiration of the Bible, the virgin birth, the resurrection. Guys like that are now realizing the, the baggage that goes with premillennialism. And I'm sensing there's kind of a. Yet a, a friend in England tells me. Premillennialism, historic premillennialism is just on the, on the rise there. So, um, I do think it's important to say that if you're a Laddian, you, you follow George Ladd and you're historic premill, like George Ladd was historic premill, I got no beef with you. I, I disagree with what happens after Christ comes back, but we hold to the, almost the same exact thing until then. So, um, I wouldn't make, I, I wouldn't do a series on Amillennialism 101 if the only problem or that people read Ladd's Presence of the Future and embraced Ladd's view. I don't think that would be worth the effort. Dispensationalism and some of the extreme forms of premillennialism do require response, especially when they accuse us there of being anti-Semitic and not taking Scripture seriously. That requires response. Yeah. We want your melodious tones on tape. The little ones and zeros. Yes, sir. Hi there. Um, I've been coming for this class for the two weeks, and the question that I've had is, how do I read Revelations now? I mean, you've given us a, bu- a bunch of examples of the two-age model. Yes. And it mostly has, you know, references to the New Testament, but nothing on Revelations. Great. How do you read Revelations? Great question. How do you read the book of Revelation? Well, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic in its literary style. It's also an epistle in the sense it's a letter to churches. And it's also... Prophetic. So, it's a complex book. The problem with the book of Revelation for us is we don't have any comparable style of writing today in our own culture. So, when we read the book of Revelation as though it were 1 Kings, and we look at it as though it's going to be point A chronologically to point B at the end, as premillenarians tend to do, we, we are misreading the book. The book is a series of repeating visions. Um, Dennis Johnson, who teaches at Westminster Seminary, has written a very excellent commentary on Revelation. I would really encourage you to get and read that. It's called The Triumph of the Lamb. Uh, Dr. Johnson argues along the lines of William Hendrickson and Greg Veal and a number of other scholars that the book of Revelation is seven, contains basically seven visions. And each vision describes the course of history between Christ's first coming and his second from a different perspective. So, Dr. Johnson uses what, what, an analogy that is really, really helpful. If you're watching, say, an NFL football game, and you're out in the truck you know, where the camera feeds all come in, there are going to be, say, seven cameras watching the game from seven different angles. One camera is going to do isolation on the quarterback and probably follow the flight of the ball, the wide receiver, whatever. Others are going to be looking straight down the line of scrimmage to look for penalties, offsides, that kind of stuff. Then there'll be a camera that covers wide angle. There'll be one from the end zone. Each of those cameras covers the game from a different angle. So if you were sitting in front of one screen and you were looking at a camera that was focusing on one thing, you would only see the one narrow thing. You wouldn't see the whole whole gamut. So the point is, in the book of Revelation, each of these visions retells the history of the people of God from Christ's first coming to the second 
each from a different perspective. So in the first three chapters, you have, for example, the vision of Christ to the churches. And there you've got letters to seven historical churches warning them that those churches that aren't faithful are going to, Christ is going to remove their candlestick. And then giving letter, a word of commendation or warning to each of the seven churches. And if you, you know, just follow kind of the map of the ancient world, you can see those churches are right down the mailbox route. The postman would have gone right in order to those seven churches. So, uh, John isn't using the seven churches to say the church of Laodicea is the church on the earth when Christ comes back, the church that's lukewarm, as I always heard. No, there's always going to be a church of Laodicea on the earth. There was one in Asia Minor when John got his vision. Then the next vision is the throne in heaven. The next vision is the two witnesses, you know, on and on and on. You get this series of repeating visions. So, to answer your question, the way to read Revelation is as a God-given commentary on all of those things in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. So, the book of Revelation opens with John seeing somebody worthy to open the scroll. That should hearken you back to the book of Daniel. At the end of the book of Daniel, the scroll was sealed up. No one was worthy to open it. So the book of Revelation is a divinely given commentary on all those threads in the Old and New Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. And John in that vision sums up for us how Christ will fulfill every one of those things. So the foil, the, 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 the villain in the, in the plot line behind the front of the book is the Roman Empire and Rome's persecution of the church in the first century. And Rome then becomes a picture to us of every God-hating, anti-Christian empire that's going to come and go throughout the course of time. And then all the images that John uses are taken directly from the Old Testament. And I venture to say that if you were a Jew sitting in a church in Asia Minor in the first century and heard John's apocalypse, you would immediately get it far quicker than we do because you'd know, oh, that's from this, oh, that's Zechariah. Oh, that's Isaiah. We get the images. Oh, that's Joel Locusts. So, I think you'll find the book of Revelation now comes alive. The amillennial, the idealist interpretation takes the weirdness out of it and it makes it a very Christ-centered book. I would encourage you to get Dennis Johnson's book. Um, I also have a, a series, I think about 30 sermons online you can download and read. Uh, you'll find the book of Revelation makes a whole lot more sense now. It's a great book. I have to say, I enjoy preaching the Revelation more than any book I've preached through. Because it's, it's got to be the most Christ-centered and application-centered book in the whole of the New Testament. And it, it just, that sounds paradoxical because you know, I always had Revelation taught and explained as though it was this weird thing you had some kind of esoteric understanding and that's just not how it is. Our gracious God and Father, we acknowledge as we stand here this evening that the glorious hope of the New Testament is not a golden age on the earth, but the coming and blessed appearance of our Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we look for that great day. We, along with creation, strain our necks to look forward in anticipation of that great and glorious day when our Savior Jesus appears. For on that day, Lord, the dead will be raised, the unbelievers will be judged, believers will be given their inheritance, and we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so, Father, we long for that great and glorious day we look forward to our Lord's coming with bated breath. And with Paul and the apostles and the early church, we pray, O Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly. Amen.